0: As you sit down, you ought to praise God because there's nobody like him. You ought to praise God for there is no one like the Lord. You ought to praise God because he is that rock that if your house is built on that rock, when the winds and the storms blow, your house does not fall down. You ought to praise God because he has brought you through some winds and some storms. You ought to praise God because your house should have fallen out a long time ago. You ought to praise God because he's done greater things than you imagined when your house was falling. Uh, so song took me back to when I was 24 and Christian and I didn't know the Lord and we was building a house on the American dream. White house, picket fence, two and a half kids. We pregnant with the first child and all of our hopes are on that baby and Three months into the pregnancy, we see the baby's heartbeat for the first time. The doctor told us there's no heartbeat. And I felt like God had failed. When the songwriter, asked the question, will he fail now? God will never fail. God will never fail because that was the turning point from Islam and atheism and materialism and just lostness. That was the turning point to my new birth. God of the universe bring to draw me to himself. He will never fail you. And not only will he never fail you, but greater things are still to come. Not only will he preserve you, but he will multiply your life in ways you can't imagine. We ought to praise him this morning. We ought to give him our hearts this morning and our tears and our pain and our confusion and our doubt, see, will never fail. You got the doctor's report this week. Your attorney called this week. Your boss gave you news you didn't want this week. Your mind's been messing with you this week. The ones you thought would be there for you aren't there this week. The question is, will he fail? Never. God will never fail us. greater things he will do for us. us. Father, we praise you for there is matchless in the heavens, unparalleled in the earth. There's no God like you, Lord. You have loved us from before the worlds began. You loved us when we were our most unlovely. You kept us, O Lord, when we were weak and wounded, sick and sore. You grabbed us, Lord, when we were sinking deep in sin. You placed our feet on solid ground. You gave us new minds and new hearts, Lord. As the old folks said, I looked at my hands and they knew. I looked at my feet and they did too. And from there, greater things you have done, O Lord. You have supplied for us and given to us and kept us and multiplied us. And greater things you will still do. That's just what you're like. You're the God of this city. You're the God of this nation. You're the God of this world. You're the God of all creation. You are our God. and We are your people. We praise you this morning for you are worthy to be praised. Be exalted, be lifted up, be adored among your people this morning. Come, enthrone yourself in our hearts, we pray. Be magnified, we pray. Let every soul, as Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Let every soul magnify the Lord this morning. By your spirit and your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, we're going to turn to God's Word this morning before we do. Just a couple of quick things. Um, first of all, some celebrations. I forgot to mention, we've got some birthdays this week. Andrew Gore and Ashley Ayu are Andrew and Ashley here this morning. We give God praise for them. Wish them a happy birthday. Andrew's is on the 1st of February. Uh, I think he's going to be 21 again. And, uh, and And Ashley is on the 2nd. And so do wish them a happy birthday. This morning, if you need a Bible this morning before we turn to God's word, we have a couple of ushers who are passing those out. Just raise your hands high and uh we can uh, get you a Bible there. There's one right down here, Sister Jackson There we go. Anybody else need a Bible this morning Amen, amen, and praise God, we've been thinking about um Children's ministry in our announcements and ministry to our young people in our announcements this month. and I uh, just want to be reminded that this Friday uh, is youth group meeting. It is at what time, Thomas? At seven o'clock and it's where? At the DC. Dream Center, one of our partners here in the neighborhood. Um, so if you are what ages? 10 to 18. Good. Way to make the announcement, Thomas. If you are 10 to 18, um, you are invited. In fact, you are encouraged. We would be delighted to have that time with you and and maybe uh, a friend from school or a friend from your neighborhood. Uh, come out uh, 7 o'clock on Friday uh, as our youth gather to encourage each other, uh, to hear from the Lord, and to have a good time. Uh, also, yes, and also praise God Uh, We've been calling on you to volunteer for children's ministry so that we can have children's ministry uh, every Sunday. Um, Currently, we have it every Sunday except the second Sundays of the month. Uh, We want to partner with our families in making Jesus known uh, when we gather in this way. And we want to make it possible for some of our moms and dads who are always chasing after kids uh, to to have about an hour to sit undistracted to hear God's word and a fellowship with God's people. That's a meaningful service uh, to our families. And so thank you for those who have um, volunteered. I, we needed six volunteers. I think we've gotten four or five uh, and we could use another three or four more. You say your math ain't math Pastor T. No, it's mathing because some of y'all don't show up. So, <laughs> so <we need laughs> up three, four, five, we got to Greater things he is yet to do. All right, so greater things are still being done. So we need another four or five volunteers uh, for children's ministry, so we can run that thing full tilt and um, be be an encouragement in the lives of our families and our kids. Um, we are going to take our offering this morning. I'm going to pray for it. The children will be dismissed to their children's program. Uh, be reminded of our call to worship. He who supplies right seed to the sword uh, and supplies bread is able to multiply. Um, seed and bread, and to increase our harvest of righteousness. Uh, so we give knowing that this is the God of all creation and greater things he will do. So let's fix our hearts um, to pray this morning for the offering, to pray for ourselves, um, and to... We don't have it on Fifth Sunday. This is a Fifth Sunday? Okay, see? All right. Thank you for that correction. Keep your kids in here now. We don't want them driving down the street somewhere. <laughs> uh, keep your kids in here this morning, All right. So there we go. That's why the other three, four volunteers. And so Fifth Sundays, okay, here we go. So let me uh, pray for us this morning, and uh, we'll turn our attention to God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for uh, your generosity to us. There's nothing we've needed, truly needed, that you've not given to us. You're God who promised to supply all of our needs according, Lord, to your riches and grace and mercy and love and righteousness. And so we come now to give, first of all, ourselves to you and then to give back to you part of what you have blessed us with. We steward now ourselves and steward the resources you've entrusted to us for your greater glory and your greater work. We pray, O oh Lord, for our children's ministry and we pray for our youth ministry. We pray that you would grow these ministries to our young people. Lord, it it would be It'd be wonderful if you would cause a revival to break out among our teenagers and our young people. So Lord, start it there, we pray. Light a flame there and then fan it into a forest fire of faith and righteousness and holiness and joy and dedication to you. Lord, we thank you for all that you have given us and all that you will give us. And now we we give ourselves to you. We pray that you bless this morning the preaching and the hearing of your word. Make it simple. Make it plain. Make it clear. Make it helpful. Make it challenging. Make it healing. Uh, Do all the things, Holy Spirit, that your people need done uh, in in our lives, Lord. Father, we praise you and we thank you for making us a church, for making us a family, for giving us this mission. And we ask that you would bless it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite the ushers to come forward and collect the offering there. And as they do that, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. To the beginning, that's right. Go to the beginning all the way to the back. Genesis chapter 1. And now while you're turning there, and as the ushers are taking the offering this morning, let me give you just a a little bit of recap in terms of what we are doing right now in the pulpit and and where we have been uh, in our studies together. Uh, If you're new to the church, uh, we begin each year with a series in what we call our five M's. Our five M's are our core strategies as a church. Uh, We take them from the book of Titus. Uh, and uh, they help to sort of guide and keep us clear on what we think the Lord has called us to do. Uh, our first M is to spread the message of the gospel, right? That's the, that's the meat and potatoes. That's the engine uh, of this church. We want to be clear about who Jesus is, the Son of God, and what he has done to save us, dying on the cross where he was punished for our sins and raised from the grave three days later, that he might be the author of eternal life and that all those who trust in him, um, repenting from sin and putting their faith in him, might share an eternal life with him. Uh, and so that message is meant to sort of work through everything that we do. Well, not only do we want to spread the message, but we also want to show mercy to our neighbors and our neighborhoods. So we want to be people who are in the neighborhood, people who are in the city as agents of God's mercy, as agents of God's uh, kind relief in the midst of suffering and challenge and pain and things of that sort. And so we, we, we want to show mercy just as we have received mercy from God. Number three, and we were thinking about this last week, uh, we want to shepherd each other to maturity. Right, So the Christian is meant to grow. We're meant to grow into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our standard for maturity. And uh, that's a team project. That's not something we go off and do by ourselves. That's something we need each other for. And so we want to shepherd each other to maturity. Number four, which is what we'll be thinking about this morning, is we want to seek to multiply. And number five, we want to send missionaries to the ends of the earth. We want to send missionaries to take this same message, uh, to show this same mercy to every nation uh, in the world. Those are our five M's. Now, normally what we would do is we would unpack those M's from the Bible, and then we would talk about strategically what would have been our strategy or our plans for advancing those M's in a given period. Well this year we're doing something a little bit differently rather than focusing on strategy we've been thinking about what postures are needed for us to excel at these ends what postures are needed what mental what spiritual maybe even to some extent what spirit uh, physical posture do we need and we were we were talking in the first sermon about what posture is that's how you that's how you stand or sit the the way you position or hold your body um, physically. So some of us have bad posture. We, we slouch and we, we slump and we, we kind of mope around. And, and bad posture creates problems, doesn't it? It can create problems with your skeletal system. It could create muscular problems, all kinds of problems. And so sometimes when we go to the doctor and, 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 a, and a back is hurting, it's, it's, it's an ankle problem. Something that we're doing in terms of how we walk or um, sometimes there's a, there's a shoulder pain, but it's, it's actually connected to a muscle somewhere else that we are overusing or underusing. And so often what a doctor will do for our health is teach us proper posture, get us in the right position so that our body functions the way it was designed to function. And that's kind of what we're hoping to do in this series. We want to get ourselves in the right spiritual posture, in the right mental posture, so that as the body of Christ, we function the way the Lord has called us to function, according to our five M's. So when we think about spreading the message of the gospel, we said we want a posture of sentness. We want a posture of sentness. We want this mindset that we have been sent by God into the world to be ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. So wherever we go, whatever we do, we want this sense that we are there and we are doing it as people sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. In week two, we were talking about mercy, and we talked about a posture of incarnation. That we want to be physically and and spiritually and mentally embodied and present wherever we are. That never in the history of the world has it been possible, as possible as it is now, to have your body in one place and your mind and your energies completely somewhere else. Never have we spent more time on screens and other things that are distractions from being present, embodied, uh, incarnated in a place with people where we can serve. That that was essential posturing to being a people who show mercy. Last week, we were thinking about maturity and, and asking the question, what posture do we need to mature as God's people? And we talked about humility. We talked about humility, particularly as it is Express in a growth mindset. we reminded of the Apostle Paul saying, you know, I have not already obtained, right? I ain't got there yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, I press toward the mark. And so Paul was reminding us that, yeah, there's a growth mindset that we need as Christians. We are pressing toward the mark, toward the high call of God. We are pressing toward conformity to Christ- Christ-likeness. None of us are there yet, amen? None of us are there yet, but we all need this longing, this growth mindset that postures us to mature in Christ's likeness. And this morning, as I said, we've come to this question of multiplication, seeking to multiply. Well, what posture do we need in order to to to, to multiply? as God would have us multiply. And we're going to do the same thing in this sermon that we've done with the other sermons. We're going to start with some theological observations and some observations about Jesus, and then we're going to move then to um, sort of our own mindset here. And so we're going to, if you're taking notes, three points this morning. Number one, God designed creation to multiply. God designed creation to multiply. Number two. Jesus expects his followers to multiply. Jesus expects his followers to multiply. Number three, therefore, we need a posture of kingdom-mindedness, a posture of kingdom-mindedness in order to multiply as we ought. In point number one, we're going to take a look at a couple of verses in Genesis chapter one. Point number two, we're going to Take a look in the New Testament at Matthew and uh, point number three. We're going to look at some of the kingdom parables that our Lord tells in terms of developing a posture of kingdom mindedness. So turn with me to Genesis chapter one. You know what Genesis chapter one is about. It's about the creation of the world, the Lord creating the universe in six days and resting on the seventh day. And we want to sort of cherry pick a few verses in this chapter to sort of see how God has made creation. Now, one of the earliest things I remember from school, uh, from science class, is that all living things grow. That's a basic principle um, in the life sciences, that all living things grow and reproduce. Now, scientists may have, quote unquote, discovered that principle, but they didn't invent that principle. Scientists learn that principle through the scientific method, right, of, of observation, repeated observation and testing of the created world. And sometimes scientists act as if scientific knowledge is altogether different from biblical or theological knowledge, but it's not. So, for example, this principle that all living things grow and reproduce is really stated pretty plainly for us throughout Genesis chapter 1 and throughout the Bible itself. From the beginning of creation, God designed the world, designed living things to be fruitful and multiply. So, look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, again, we're in the days of creation here, and this is where God creates the vegetation, the the plants of, of creation. And it says there, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. Or look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 22. Not just the plant life now, but the fish and the birds. And God blessed him, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Well, this is true also of the land creatures and the insects. So look at verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so until finally you get to the apex of creation, verse 28, with humanity. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, there's pretty clear in it. So whether we're talking about plants that have within them seeds that have within them future plants. Or whether we're talking about insects and livestock and humanity who also are designed to reproduce and to multiply right from the beginning. God has designed the creation in such a way that it's meant to grow and to reproduce and to multiply. It's what it means in part to be alive. A living creature is to grow and to reproduce and to multiply. So science, once again, is simply confirming what the Bible told us centuries ago. Now, there are a couple of applications I want to draw out of this real quickly. The first is this. This truth that living things are meant to multiply, are meant to grow and reproduce, means that living, that that life-giving culture Ought to be the norm of human existence. That human culture ought to be life-giving. That ought to be the norm. That ought to be the standard. And we should celebrate life in all of its forms. We should be producers of life-affirming culture, music, arts, dance, etc. We should be advocates for Policies that protect and affirm life, because it is life, it is alive. The lives of the unborn, the lives of the marginalized and mistreated, the lives of persons in the criminal justice system are being stopped by policemen, the lives of transgendered and gay identifying people, the lives of black, brown, white, yellow people, the lives of animals, all life. Now, before we get into the necessary discussions about right and wrong, deserving or undeserving, there first must be a vigorous affirmation of life itself, its dignity, its value, its preciousness as God designed and gave it. If we are not people who first come to affirm life, then all of those secondary discussions will distort our response to life. If we don't affirm the life of a Tyree Nichols, a man made in the image of God like all the rest of us, then traffic stops become gangland activity that result in murder. If we don't affirm the lives of people who understand themselves to be gay or transgendered or homosexual or what have you, If we don't affirm their life before we get into a discussion of biblical sexual ethics, we will treat them like they are not people. If we don't affirm that life in the womb is life from conception, it is reproducing, it is growing, cells are multiplying, as God designed it, we will make heinous choices in policy and personal practice. It is, if we take our cue from God, it is the case that all of creation was originally designed to be life-giving, life-living, life-affirming, and life-protecting. This, I think, is part of what it means for humanity to be given dominion over creation. Not for its exploitation, but for its cultivation. For its protection. To be alive means that we grow and reproduce. Now, there's a corresponding application I want to make here. And it's this, the principle that all living things grow and multiply also means that death itself is an interruption of and an intrusion on God's original design. Death is that visitor who showed up for dinner uninvited, brought his own plate, plans to rob your refrigerator. He's unwelcome, he's uninvited, he is unnatural, he's not a part. We ought to view death as common after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, but we should never view it as normal. We should never be accepting of death. In the sense that it's like right or something. It is a distortion of what God originally created. It is the curse that has come upon the world. Sin entered the world, and now all living things must die. So sin and death are common, but God actually designed us to live forever. So sin and death are not normal. So as living creatures, then, we should remain Unadjusted, we should remain uncomfortable with death. In fact, death causes trauma and pain to the living. So, as people, whether we're Christians or not, but certainly if we are Christians, we should actively oppose all the death dealing, life destroying things we can. We want to slow and stop the death dealing trafficking of guns and drugs in our community. We want to oppose and end the death-celebrating culture of film and music and art. We want to bring an end to all forms of state-sanctioned death dealing. That's contrary to the, the, the state in which God planned for us to live. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death is our enemy. We want to orient ourselves to death and treat it as the enemy that it is. Death itself, the very thing itself, will be defeated when Jesus comes. That same text, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, tells us that that death is our last enemy, and he will defeat our last enemy for all those who believe when he comes, so that death itself must die. The power of Jesus' resurrection. Those of us who live in resurrected life, we have to be agents of pushing back on death. God designed us from the beginning to be life oriented, death resisting people who grow and multiply. But what about Jesus? Point number two Jesus expects his followers to multiply. The Lord expects his followers to, to multiply. Our sister Annie did a wonderful job this morning reading Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, that parable there of the talents. This man gives his servants different amounts of talents. To one he gives five, to another he gives two, to another he gives one. The text says there that the one he gave five right away went and invested and multiplied those five talents and gained five more. The one who gave two, he did the same. He invested it, he used those talents, he multiplied those talents and got two more. Each of them got a 100% return on what their, what their um, master had given him. And then there's that one who said, I know you reap where you didn't sow. I knew you were a hard master. So instead of doing the right thing and multiplying his gift, he said, I buried it. Here's the one thing you gave me. I'm giving it back to you. That servant was cast out of his master's presence, right? Now, here's the thing. Here's the punchline, that parable. God has given each and every one of us things he means for us to use and to multiply in his service. Everyone in Christ has at least one gift, and many people have multiple gifts and multiple abilities. They got five or two. Everybody's got at least one. And according to what God has given us, and not according to what He's given others, according to what He has given you and me, we are expected to use that gift and to multiply that gift for the glory of our Lord. I'm going to put it to you a different way to only give God what is His and not improve on it with growth or multiplication is to rob God of what he expects and to rob ourselves of the joy we're meant to have with God. You remember what he says to the one with five talents who multiplied it and two talents who multiplied it, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Share the joy of your master. God is designed it in such a way that not only are we meant to multiply, but that multiplication is meant for our joy with him. So if it ever we're thinking about, yes, I've got this gift or I've got this talent, I've got this ability, but I don't feel like using it, this inconvenient. Oh, I take a whole lot to do this, so I'm going to shrink back. No, beloved, no, that wherever we face that and we think that way, we're the servant who buried his one talent. And we're the servant in that way who's robbing ourselves of joy joy with the God who created us and gave us that thing to use so that he is magnified and we are fulfilled. I, I think there's a lot of ache in the world for fulfillment. It just really is a sense of purpose and productivity and passion and satisfaction in those things. And I think sometimes people don't see the connection between really in faith using what God has given them to multiply it and that sense of fulfillment that they're longing for. Yeah, the, the, way to that, the way to that satisfaction, the way to that, that fulfillment is to take that thing that is your gift. And you know, well, Pastor T, how do I know what my gift is? I don't know what my gift is. Let me give you a clue. Given to me many years ago. That thing that you do, that everybody else seems to be blessed by, but that you think nothing of, is very likely the area of your gifting. So if you're that if you're that person who you know seems to sort of um, share the Bible with others and um, make the scripture kind of plain and. It feels and looks obvious to you, but everybody else is like, yo, I never saw the Bible that way, and thank you for helping me understand it, et cetera. Maybe you have a teaching gift. If you're that person who thinks nothing of making meals for someone who's in need and taking that over there, that doesn't exhaust you. It doesn't feel like it costs you anything. Uh, You you sort of delight to do it. You think nothing of it. uh, And everybody else feels ministered to and, and helped and healed and strengthened. As you do that, maybe you have the gift of mercy, right? Or hospitality, et cetera. Maybe you only like to hear yourself sing in the shower. But others have overheard you singing. And they're like, no, 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 that ain't the water, right? Bro, sis, I, you got a gift there. You need to use that. What, whatever it may be, that thing that you don't think anything of, but it seems to really edify and bless other people. That's maybe a hint to where your gifting is. Explore that, use that, and ask God to refine for you your understanding of how He's wired you. But your gifts, are meant to be used and multiplied. A true disciple is a multiplying disciple. We see this in other places in the Scripture in the New Testament. So that's Jesus in that parable of the kingdom there in Matthew 25. But in other places in the New Testament, the command that multiplying is, is basically turned into a command. So you can write these texts down, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Titus says, or Paul says there to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you would um, place what remained into order, right? And then he says this, and that you would appoint elders in every town. Now, on the island nation of Crete, most scholars say they were probably somewhere between 20 and 40 towns, and so this instruction to Titus meant he was meant to be a multiplying pastor. He was to train other pastors to be pastors, to be elders. And he was to most likely, since there are elders appointed to those towns, he was most likely to plant churches or congregations in each of those towns. He was meant to be multiplying in that way. Or Paul says it to Timothy slightly differently in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. There he says, basically, what you have heard from me Timothy. Timothy was his understudy, his disciple, if you will. He says, what you have heard from me, take that and teach other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So so he envisions um, pastoral ministry envisions the Christian life. He envisions discipleship as this multiplication, this chain of multiplication. He has raised up Timothy and others. Timothy is meant to raise up other people that he entrusts the, the Christian teaching to, and those other people are meant to raise up other people, and on and on and on and on. So to be a Christian is to be a disciple who makes other disciples. To be a pastor is to be a pastor who makes other pastors. To be a church is to be a congregation of people who makes or gives birth to other churches. And in some sense, everything that we aim to do as a church is meant for this multiplication. I don't know if you know that or not. So our small groups are not just for us to sort of gather in smaller parties and to sort of engorge ourselves, get fat on Bible knowledge, and that never leave our small group. And we're not meant to be in our small group for the rest of our that one same small group with the same people, that same 10 people for the rest of our Christian lives. No, God's got plans for you. At a certain point, you need to be thinking, should I break off from this small group and start another small group so that we are multiplying groups and multiplying capacity to invest in others? Or take, for example, our leadership training groups and our Titus 2 groups meeting with the older women of the church. That's all about multiplication. Titus 2 says to the pastor there, um, uh, teach the older women sound doctrine so that they may be able to teach the younger women how to care for their homes and their husbands and uh, how to magnify the, the word of God, etc. Multiplication. So our leadership training groups are, are about that. Our planting of other churches. So we're, we're coming up on eight years old in April, praise God. Yeah, hallelujah. We ain't know if we'd make it eight weeks. Look at God and greater things he has done. So in our, in our eight years, in God's kindness, we've been able to start two other churches. Mercy of Christ up in the Deanwood neighborhood of D.C. and Congress Heights Community Church just right down the street here on Alabama. Praise God. Because that's, how, that's what he's like. He's a multiplying God. He wasn't just interested in raising up this church, but he was interested in raising up this church and through this church, other churches too. And in his kindness, we, we have become um, one, one of the founding congregations in something called the Creek Collective. You can look it up, thecreekcollective.org. But that's a, now a national collection of churches that are pooling funds together to plant other churches in neighborhoods like ours all across the country. And so we're about two years old, and right now we have somewhere around 30 churches involved in that. Got seven new church plants, uh, another 20-some-odd churches that are contributing to it, et cetera. And, and beyond that, lots of churches and individuals in the country who just say, hey, we love what you're doing. We want to give to it. Praise be to God. We are meant to multiply individually and corporately. And we, we are aiming the life of our church at that. So now the question is, what what posture do we need? If we're going to multiply in that way, what posture do we need? Let me first tell you which which posture we have to resist. We have to resist the temptation to only be caring about ourselves. We, We have to resist the temptation to only be focused on this church and resist the temptation to only be focused on our individual spiritual lives or our individual small groups etc there is a, a narrowness and a smallness that can enter into the life of the christian and the christian church that will keep us from a, a bigger vision of multiplication and we understand a lot of it for example so for example you know th- there would be christians who would who might say did say actually when we planted mercy of Christ, we were only about a year and a half old, two years old, somewhere in there, we weren't very old ourselves as a church. And and there were many Christians who like, yo, you just getting started. You, why would you, why would you plant a church so early? And, you know, I'm like, I don't know. It's in the Bible. Right. You know, it was happening pretty rapidly in the book of Acts. Why, why should it not be happening rapidly now? Right. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah we get that. But, you you're young. You you need those resources. You need those people, et cetera. I'm like, they're not our people. They're Jesus people. And if Jesus wants to move them somewhere, we we need to be okay with that, right? So there's a narrowness or. We believe in international missions, which we'll talk about next week. We, we want to invest in the sending of persons from this place uh, to other places in the world where the church is not established to preach the gospel and to start churches, right? Now, there are many people who, with a good heart, now, I'm, not, I'm just no shade on anybody, but with a good heart, I think, who would say, we got needs right here in the community. Why, why would we send those resources, you know, someplace else? We need those resources right here. And so there's a a kind of um, not growth mentality, but there's a kind of small pie mentality. And there's a kind of focusing on the self that will keep us from multiplying if we're not careful. So, what we need now is a kingdom mindedness. Let me give you a poor man's definition of what I mean when I say kingdom mindedness. Kingdom mindedness is a preoccupation, a, a focus, a commitment, a preoccupation with the spread of God's rule and the demonstration of God's goodness through God's people throughout the world. I'll give it to you again. It is a preoccupation with the spread of God's rule and the demonstration of God's goodness through God's people throughout the world. Most theologians would say, wherever you have God's people under God's rule, there you have an expression of God's kingdom. What we want to see is that kingdom spread everywhere among all people. His rule, his word, his way, his goodness being demonstrated by God's people to a world that needs to know our Savior. Now, there's a huge difference between church growth and kingdom growth. So it's really vital. There's a huge difference between church growth and kingdom growth. Our church could grow until the point that we need to fill this place and have three or four services over the weekend. And that'd be great. Praise the Lord. But that doesn't really mean that the kingdom is growing all that exponentially. Right? Or vice versa. The kingdom could be making mad advances. And our church not grow very much at all, maybe even shrink. And the question is, as Christian people who are committed to this particular congregation, which one is we going to be happy with? Are we we going to only be happy if we grow, but nothing else seems to be impacted in the world? I hope not. Or do we view the spread of the kingdom, the growth of other churches, the manifestation of God's goodness among other Christians and through other people, do we view that as a win for Team Jesus? And then we rejoice that we're on Team Jesus. What we want is the multiplication of the kingdom, of the gospel, the spread of it everywhere. We love to see everybody in Southeast D.C. saved and disciple. Amen. And flourishing. I hope you pray for that. And I, and I, hope, I hope, like me, you, you wrestle with the unbelief of, of a word like every, every right? We want to see every individual saved and first talk on, well, you know, everybody can be saved. But why not? Why not? God's powerful enough, right? And so I hope we're battling with our unbelief and we're asking bold things, big things of God, like sin revival, save everybody in Southeast, save everybody in D.C. You can do that. God, you can do that. Won't you do that? And I hope we know that if everybody in Southeast got saved, they can't come to church here. We need all God's churches. We need more churches, healthy, gospel-preaching, member-loving churches to be able to do that work. If God catches all those fish, somebody got to clean them. Right? We need churches for that. Right? And so we want to see the growth of the kingdom, not just our church how do we develop that kind of mindset? How do we develop the kind of mindset that's preoccupied with the spread of God's rule and the demonstration of God's goodness through God's people all across the world? Just so that I can tickle Peter, six things, (laughs) six quick things for developing a kingdom mindset. Number one, we must first enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ must first enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you just several passages of Scripture. You can write them down, or if you can flip with me if you want to. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first sermon preached in the Gospels. You want to summarize every sermon preached in the early chapters of the Gospels, you can do it in that one sentence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15 read this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Beloved, the kingdom of God has been here since Jesus came the first time. It has been here and it's been spreading slowly and steadily around the world since our Lord took on human flesh and walked on the earth. And even when he preached the gospel, the first word of the gospel was a command, repent. That is a fancy word that means turn around. You've been going the wrong way. You've been going away from God. You've been going away from sin. The kingdom of God is over here, but you're headed in this direction. And the first word of mercy from God is turn around. Repent. Change your mind and change your direction. Stop going away from me and come back to me says the Lord. And it's one side of a two-sided coin. On one side is repent, and on the other side is believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came into the world and died for the sins of the world, took the punishment of God against sin on behalf of every living being. Put your faith in him as the one who stood in your place who was buried for three days and resurrected from the grace three days days later so that you and I would be right with God, would be justified before God and have eternal life, never to die again. Whereas we said already, that was not God's original purpose, but that we should live with him forever. It's Jesus who brings us back to God's original purpose that we would be eternally living beings with God. And in order to have that life, you must repent and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's how you enter the kingdom. That's how you become a citizen of God's realm. That's how you come under God's rule. And, and that's how you become a representation, a, an ambassador for, for his, his kingdom. So you, you and I must not only be citizens of some earthly country, which lasts only until we die, we must be citizens of that heavenly country, a country that never ends, that gives life to its citizens that never ends. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him. And this too is for your joy. I want you to know something this morning. We talk about serious things as Christians like sin and death, et cetera, and judgment. But I want you to know something. We talk about that so we can, we can actually get to the joy that God has for us. So in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 13, 44 to 46, Matthew shares two short parables about the kingdom of heaven, and they're meant to be parables that encourage those people who haven't yet entered the kingdom to do so. And they're meant to be parables that encourage those people who have entered the kingdom to remember what they have gotten upon entrance into the kingdom. So Matthew says this, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus speaking in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, verse 44, which a man found and covered up. Now notice the next few words, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I love that parable. I love that parable for so many reasons. First of all, it's just, it's just a funny story, right? The cat's out in the field, it's somebody else's field. He's taking a shortcut home. Like all these kids would be walking through my yard trying to get to, to their house, right? He taking a shortcut home and he kicks a rock. And like, that was shining. And he looks on it and it's gold, it's treasure, right? And he look around like, see? and with a foot he just covers it up again it up again right and he keep walking and he like I need to buy that field and he get everything he got and he sells it all he had the pawn shop he got on the corner he like bro I'm gonna hook you up man I just got that flat screen and brand new you can get it you can get it he sell everything he got to go get that field and the bible says he did it with joy why I mean, to have the kingdom of God is the most marvelous thing you can have. It's the most precious possession we can have is to have a part in that kingdom with God, which should never end. Sell everything you got, beloved. Sell everything you hold dear and go by that field. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 45, Jesus continues there. He says again. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, I like this parable, because this parable really in some ways implies that we ought to be people who know the value of a thing. Here's a merchant who's in search of great pearls. He knows pearls when he sees them. He knows a quality pearl when it comes upon one. And, and now he, he walks up on a pearl of great value. Obviously more, more valuable than all the other pearls that he's seen and sold. And like the guy in the field, he sold it all to get that one pearl. Jesus is the pearl of great value. He is that pearl. Sell everything you have to have that pearl and you will not be disappointed. Enter the kingdom of heaven by repenting of sin and putting your faith in Jesus, and joy will be yours in him. Do that this morning. Don't don't delay. Let's bring us to the second thing. First, we must enter, then we must worship. Worship God in gratitude and reverence. If If you and I If we have this kingdom and we think about this kingdom at all, we think about what we have gotten in and through Jesus, the natural response ought to be praise of God, ought to be worship of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I I love the therefores in this thing. Listen, he's like, you got a kingdom that you didn't conquer, that you couldn't purchase, that you couldn't even enter apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But now you have entered that kingdom. The natural response is gratitude. Gratitude. The Christian heart ought to be a hothouse for the blooming of gratitude. Gratitude should grow there abundantly and and flourish because we got a kingdom, notice what the text says, that cannot be shaken. Earthly kingdoms come and go. We don't talk about Babylon no more. We, We ain't worried about the Ammonites no more. Earthly kingdoms come and go. There used to not be a place called South Sudan. Now there is. It's not guaranteed to be forever. I got news for you too. The United States is a baby of a country that ain't guaranteed to be here when Jesus come back. ain't got no permanent place in the history of the world. This is a kingdom that can be shaken, but not God's kingdom. Not God's kingdom. He laid the foundation of that thing with his own hands. Nobody can shake it. So you and I have a home. We have a kingdom. We are citizens with the most high God. We ought to be glad. And being glad, we ought to worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. There's a whole sermon in that verse I can't give you right now. But the one thing I'll say is this. Now, when the Bible uses the word worship, it means all of life. It's not just talking about what we do on Sunday morning, right? It's how we live our whole life. But let's just talk about Sunday morning. I had a good time singing this morning. I don't know about y'all. Worshiping the Lord and praising the Lord. And it sounded like y'all were having a good time too, because I heard some of y'all singing. Saw a couple of you clapping. And one or two of you kind of, you know, rocking. The one thing the praise team, and this is not a rebuke. it's just me talking out loud. The one thing the praise team should never have to ask us to do is stand up and praise God. They should never have to twist our arms. They should never have to, you know, sort of goad us along. They should never have to try and pull on our heartstrings or do anything that resembles manipulation or anything that resembles performance. There's a difference between performance and worship. We should be worshipers who come in this place ready, glad, to worship our God because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we should be worshipers. So what do we do to develop a kingdom mindset? First, we must enter that kingdom, and then in that kingdom, we must secondly worship in gratitude and reverence. Number three, we need to be people who pray for the coming of God's kingdom. Who pray for the coming of God's kingdom, your mind has probably already gone to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, where Jesus is there teaching the disciples how to pray, what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. And you will know those lines, even if you've never read them before, because you maybe have prayed them in many other contexts. Your kingdom, what? Come. Your will be what? Where? Yeah, we need to be praying that. If we're going to be kingdom minded people, we should be regularly interceding. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer. And unpacking that prayer, not merely just repeating those words, but, but, but really interceding with God in, in specific ways that, that his kingdom would manifest itself, that it would come and that it would spread and that the kingdom here on earth would more and more reflect the kingdom in heaven. That prayer needs to be central to our prayer lives if we would be kingdom-minded people. Number four, so we need to enter, we need to worship, we need to pray. Number four, we need to pursue. We need to pursue the kingdom as our only priority. We need to pursue the kingdom of God as our only priority if we're going to be kingdom-minded people. Again, you probably know where I'm going. I'm still in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek what? First, what? the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So in the context, Jesus is talking about how God cares for his people. And he's given these wonderful illustrations that we remember. He closed the the flowers of the field, right? He provides for the birds of the air. If he cares for those things, how much more will he care for you? And because we know that now, because we know that God is going to care for our physical needs now, not all you want, your needs, God's going to care for our physical needs, needs, we should be free then to give all of our focus on pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness. That's not just our top priority. In one sense, it's our only priority. So you notice he says, seek ye first and doesn't add a second. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here's the consequence. And all these things, which your father knows you have need of, will be added to you. And so that kingdom-minded person is that person who finds the ability to turn off worry about housing and clothing and all those kinds of things, which are necessary, but turns off worry about those things in order to give themselves to the pursuit of God's kingdom and his righteousness and in faith trusting that this God who's promised to provide will in fact do that, that he has never failed us yet. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all your needs will be provided. So that's the the mentality of the kingdom-minded person. But Jesus puts it a different way in Luke 9, verse 62. He's talking to his disciples about the cost of discipleship, and he says this, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, right? That there's something about the kingdom of God that requires that focus, that we're we're like farmers plowing, and we need to plow a straight road to the kingdom. We can't plow looking back because we're going to be bobbing and weaving. It's like my beautiful wife. She's beautiful. She's wise. She's brilliant. She's the best one in our family. That's right. But her driving scares me. driving scares me. I'm I'm like, I don't like bridges, them big bridges. All that water under it, stuff like that. I don't like that. I need to be, if there's a bridge involved, I need to be driving. Because I'm going to get in that middle lane, right, where I can't see over the edge. And I'm going to get us across. But this one? Soon as you get on the bridge, now we done had this conversation for 25 years, y'all. We done had this conversation for decades. Soon as she get on the bridge, ooh, look over there. Ooh, look at that. And the car just kind of, you know, bombing and weaving. <laughs> like, I'm over there like this, come on, baby, get us over the bridge, get us over the bridge. Just pray to the Lord. It does help my prayer life. It does help my prayer life. Oh, the kingdom of heaven can't be out there like weaving, right? looking at everything off the road now we got to lock in right and pursue it in a straight line not plowing crooked furrows right amen baby amen moving to number five number five (laughs) number five now in your pursuit now we're pursuing the kingdom of heaven now in our pursuit we need to focus 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 on the right things Right? So there's a mistaken way to try to pursue the kingdom, and there's a right way. So, what I'm thinking here is Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Romans 14, verse 17. Paul says there, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, there are people who think they're pursuing the kingdom, but doing it by legalistic means. Christians can't eat this, they can't drink that, they can't go here, they can't do that. And they they think by those means, by that legalism, they are right with God and they are entering the kingdom. And yet Paul says the kingdom is of a whole different sort, right? So instead of focusing on don't taste, don't touch, all that stuff that in Colossians chapter 2 around verse 20 he tells us has no power to subdue the flesh that are a shadow, not the substance of the kingdom, instead of focusing on all those things, Paul says here, no, 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 the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Focus on that. Focus on praying to the Spirit to give you power, to give me power to live an upright life. Focus on the Spirit and ask Him to to give us peace that passes understanding. Even in the midst of all the world's chaos, focus on the Holy Spirit to, to give us joy. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Ask the Spirit to give you joy, spiritual joy that comes from being in God's kingdom. So we want to pursue the kingdom and focus on the right things. Number six, and finally, as we're doing this, we enter the kingdom, we worship. We pray, we pursue, we focus. Finally now, there needs to be some expectation. Expect the growth of the kingdom even when you can't see it. Expect the growth of the kingdom even when you can't see it. Matthew chapter 13, again, a couple more kingdom parables, verses 31 and 33. Matthew 13, 31 and 33, I'm going to be out your way. The Bible says there, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. You see the word pictures there. You got to see that small that seems insignificant. It's planted. And as it grows, it soon grows to be larger than all the other planted vegetation. It grows to the point where it becomes a kind of tree where the birds of the air can nest in it. That's how the the kingdom is growing. But now in the next parable, it is often an invisible growth. It's like yeast in flour, which we can't see, but it's in the flour, and it is working its way through the whole batch of dough. The kingdom of heaven enters a society like ours, and it doesn't look like the church or the kingdom is very significant, but as we are out there evangelizing and discipling and praying and worshiping, one by one, two by two, five by five, people come to Jesus and the the kingdom begins to spread, invisible for a time, until you look up and it's the biggest plant on the block, and people come and nest in it and roost in it. So it has to be for the person who's kingdom-minded, the ability to see through events, the ability to see through the natural world to the spiritual reality, that God's word has been sent into the world and it does not return void. It accomplishes what he sent it into the world to do. The kingdom is growing and bearing fruit. And so we can't lose heart and we can't, we can't lose composure. and We can't lose our minds when we see things that are so obviously contrary to the kingdom. And you can fill in a whole list of things I do that. Instead, we must remember and expect that the kingdom will continue to grow and manifest itself in the fullness of time. If we're going to be a church That seeks to multiply. We can't be selfish and too self-concerned. We have to be people who are kingdom-minded. And we need to develop that mindset individually, develop that mindset corporately, so that we can give ourselves more and more to this multiplication project that the Lord has given us as his people. May his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we pray for the coming of your kingdom in its full. It has already broken into the world with the coming of your Son, our Lord. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would hasten its spread, that it would, like yeast, work its way through the whole batch of dough of society, that it would, even though it starts small in some place, it would grow up like a, a mustard seed germinates into a, a bush or shrub, birds could nest in. We pray that your kingdom would come in power, in righteousness, in demonstration of your love, in the conversion of sinners, the saving of souls, in the building of your church for the glory of your name and for our joy in it. Help us, O Lord, not to bury the talents that you give us, Help us, O Lord, to enter into your kingdom, to worship you, to pray, O Lord, fervently for the coming of your kingdom, to pursue your kingdom and to pursue it in the right way with the right focus, O Lord. Help us to do it with faith, expecting that you will complete your work, O Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.